every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello, and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Karen Steele, Senior Vice President of Marketing at NEAR, a global leader in data intelligence for businesses. Karen has an impressive track record as an enterprise cloud marketing executive with extensive experience in scaling high-growth companies. On this episode, Karen discusses building demand gen teams on a global scale and shares examples from her favorite campaigns. She also offers advice for marketing leaders on investing in their website and explains why it's a critical decision for growth. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Karen Steele, Senior Vice President of Marketing at NEAR, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today we are joined by special guest, Karen, how are you? I'm great, Ian. Nice to be here. Yeah, great to have you. Excited to chat up. It's been months and months and months since we chatted in general, so it's going to be really, really exciting for me to hear everything that's going on with Near and with you, Karen. So excited to have you on the show today. Likewise, thanks for inviting me. I enjoyed our last conversation. I can't wait to catch up. Indeed. So let's start off. What was your first job in Demand Gen? So, you know, it's funny, when I was thinking about that question, I think that my first job at every company I've ever been at has included Demand Gen because I'm a pure B2B marketer. I think we talked about this in our last interview. And I think no matter what your role is in a company, you're always thinking about impacting revenue. And so I have to trace it back to my early, early days. Even when I was at Apple and I was more involved, I was more on the Marcom side of the house. And I was doing things like product launches and advertising and communications. But it always came down to how were we impacting the selling process? And in the case of the time that I was at Apple, which was a very different company than it is today, we had a really strong dealer channel. So I had a lot of emphasis, my role had a lot of emphasis on empowering dealers to sell more products through the channel. So I don't think there's a single job I've ever had in marketing that wasn't focused around demand gen. So it's always been sort of a core part of my DNA. And so you, I can't say just anymore, but you recently came to NEAR. Can you tell us a little bit about your role at NEAR? Absolutely. So I joined NEAR. NEAR is a company most of you, most of your listeners won't have heard of because it's a company that, it's a 10-year-old company, but we were founded and started with a lot of success in the Asia Pacific region. So headquartered in Singapore initially, and then we bought a company in the US. So I came to NEAR by way of that acquisition. So there was a company called Uber Media that is now part of NEAR, and it's the US arm, the America's arm of NEAR. Both companies are about 10 years old. Um, I came in to, to run marketing. Neither company had ever really had a strong marketing presence. So the cool thing for me is it was a company with a global footprint that had a certain amount of it, maturity and customers, et cetera. But I got to build the marketing team from the ground up. So I've been very heads down the last seven months, and that's what I've been doing. So my full remit is to run the entire global marketing organization, and that's what I've built. So I think I've hired about 14, 15 people in the last six or seven months. So it's been a kind of a crazy ride. And I have, you know, people on the ground in the Americas, but I also have people in all other parts of the world. Let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree in the nest, are we not? This is where you can go and feel honest and trusted and share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets 
taking a step back, Karen, what does Near do and who do you sell to? Right. So we are in the data intelligence market space, which of course is a pretty crowded space. We help companies solve really complex problems and answer questions for their business that help them grow and ultimately generate revenue. So we are not a BI company. I don't even want to get into the technology, but what I will tell you that we do is we help operational intelligence people. So there are people in companies that have data scientist titles and researcher titles, but also marketers really understand buying behavior. And that's what we do. And we do it by amassing just a ton of people and places data. We're privacy led first and foremost, because we collect a lot of really important and often a little bit scary information on what people are doing and where they're going and what patterns they have in terms of travel and consumer behavior, but we do it in a really thoughtful and and privacy-led way. So in terms of audiences, we have two, and this is one of the challenges we have from demand gen, we have two completely different audiences. We have an operational buyer that is, think about a researcher or a data scientist that sits on the floor of P&G that's looking at buying patterns for Tide or a Downy or any one of their many, many products. And then we also have marketers and publishers and media companies that use our technology to understand audience segmentation and activate those audiences in a really smart way and do it by way of understanding their own first party data. So knowing who comes to their website, etc, but also utilizing third party data and tying those patterns together. So at the end of the day, we're a company that helps other companies make really smart, insightful decisions, but do that by way of helping them learn about consumer patterns and behaviors with their buyers. What size companies are generally are, are you talking to or your customers? Mostly enterprise. Um, We have some of the biggest brands in the world using our products. So 60% of the Fortune 500. Big markets for us would include automotive, financial services, retail, tourism, commercial real estate. So kind of a huge, huge mix of verticals and some of the very, very big brands that, that would be in those markets. So Karen, a little different from our our normal episodes where the CMO didn't just come in brand new and get to build their team. So you truly got to build your team from scratch. And I should say you're a world-class marketer. You've done this a few times. And so I'm curious, how did you structure your team to acquire new accounts to build a go-to-market engine? Yeah, very much appreciate the the question. I think it's a great one. The first thing I did was look at the go-to-market strategy that had existed at the company even before we had much in the way of marketing. And I knew I was walking into a global situation, so I knew what I would be building would be sort of a hub-and-spoke model where I would build the infrastructure for a global engine, and then we would put people on the ground in different geographies. And I've, I've done this before at, at other global brands, and, and it's super important to do that thoughtfully because the whole point of having the hub-and-spoke model where you have a global infrastructure is that that should benefit every geography equally. And then you should give autonomy to your local teams on the ground to be able to to market locally and in the way they see best fit. So carve out the budget that makes sense based on revenue contribution for those teams, but be able to add that sort of infrastructure value in terms of integrated campaigns, global communications, global customer marketing and advocacy, but like have one team, for example, I hired one person to run global demand gen, but he has people on the ground in all the geographies. And so they report back, he owns a global pipeline number, but the teams are able to to work together really closely and also work independently to, to meet the needs of their local markets. Yeah. So why do you think that that's so important to have that localized effort? It's critical. I I don't think anybody sitting in the United States has the appropriate understanding of what some of the local characteristics are of, of different things that happen in 
Singapore or Hong Kong or the Middle East, for example, or Europe. I think that we have to trust and rely on our global counterparts to be able to bring that perspective into play while giving them the overhead and the capability and some of the key assets to be able to build campaigns and and take things to market. So I think going back to my days at Informatica, that was exactly the way I structured the team. I had a 40-person team and 10 of it was sitting in other geographies and they reported up to me, but they had probably even a stronger relationship with their general managers on the ground that owned the business on the ground in their local geo. And so I didn't try and come in to upset the apple cart. We we knew that we had a strong presence in Asia Pac from a sales point of view. We'd obviously been doing certain things very well with customer generation, et cetera. So I wanted to build a team that could augment that and help those teams be super successful in the most productive way. This is something that we hear specifically with technology companies where you come into a company as the VP of marketing or as a CMO where they've been doing things one way for a while and it's been working without traditional marketing, I guess you could say, or not even made, maybe traditional, just marketing in general, or without definitely without a marketing leader. How do you approach going into a situation like that? Great question. I think first you have to build the trust. I think that companies that haven't invested, and by the way, there's so many companies in the B2B world that that are not marketing driven or marketing first. They're typically, they come from the sales space or the the product space. And so I think first you have to build that trust and and it takes time to show results. So for me, what I did when I came into Near and part of it was we had just acquired a couple of companies. We were trying to come together as one team, one brand. And so the first thing I focused on was building the story and building the brand strategy because at the end of the day, everybody can kind of stand behind that and say, yeah, this is who we are as a company. This is the marketplace we want to dominate. And so it's heavy lifting, though. And what I needed to do very quickly was get the entire leadership team globally on board. So I structured a, a global brand strategy workshop to get people in the same room. And of course, we weren't all in the same room because it was COVID and we were spread out across the, the, the globe. But we literally did a six-hour workshop to get every, every leader in the company to have the same conversation about what is our vision, what is our mission, what is our brand strategy, who do we stand for as a company, what is the kind of culture we want to create, and build that brand narrative from from that work. And it was super productive, and honestly, probably more productive than I've had at companies where we've all been in the same room. This was done on a Friday evening in the US. We had people, it was Saturday for people in Australia. We had people in India and Singapore dialed in in the middle of the night or the morning their time, whatever it was. But people were so engaged because everybody believed that we got to get this story right. We've got to become a singular brand that stands for something in the market. And so that's where I earned the trust, I think, at the beginning, as people realized, okay, she may not have her whole team hired yet. She's not generating a whole bunch of pipeline yet because we haven't figured out the story and and the narrative. And so that's where I sort of began the journey to earn that trust. And then I hired the team. And then in hiring the team, I hired super experienced people. I hired people that have a track record and people that could do this in their sleep, quite honestly, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, but I needed people that we could just turn it on and be up and running. And and that took, during COVID, the hiring stuff was hard. Usually I pride myself on the fact that I can get a whole team in place because of my network in three months. This took me like five months, which is, I still think, fairly impressive. But I hired a world-class team. I hired some of the best and the brightest. I empowered the rest of the teams in the geographies, as we've talked about, so that people didn't feel left out like the core America's team was taking over everything. I really wanted everybody to feel invested and empowered. And I think we, we've we been very successful so far. I love that. That's so cool. I've had that conversation in the past where it's like, you have the person who comes in, they, they know that they want to bring this team on, but 
like you said, I mean, going from you being like, Hey, I, I can do this pretty fast. And normally I come in and do it at three to someone to do it in five. You figure if you're a first time CMO, if you've never done this, if you don't quite have the Karen Steele, uh, <laughs> network bringing all the right people on, maybe you make a few mishires, stuff like that. You're looking at six months before you get the people on the ground. You might be fired in two more months if you, if you're not doing something. So it seems like you had a little bit of, of cachet at that point that bringing on the whole team is going to take a little bit of time. Did you have initial areas of focus where you're like, okay, I'm just going to focus on this, plug a few holes here, work on this one thing? Or what was what was that first domino to fall? I don't want to harp on COVID. And I think we all want that to be in the rear view mirror. But what I will say, the dynamics for me that were different during this, and I think a lot of people like me are, have gone through this in the last year, and they're still going to go through it going into 2022, is it was hard to hire even the best people that you had relationships with. Because what happened during COVID is for those employers that were really good to their employees, people were really loyal. And they weren't necessarily going to leave a company and take on something new because they felt that loyalty to their company that had given them flexibility during a really scary time for all of us that were going through that. And so I prioritized. I prioritized on one of the first hires I knew I had to make was the global head of demand gen. That is not an easy role for any CMO to hire. And I needed somebody that truly did have that global experience. And so yeah. that was one of the first hires I focused on. I happened to find a superior guy that that I was lucky to get and get him fast. And then he could help me build the whole team. The other position I focused on right away was customer marketing and that might sound odd but we're not a we weren't a brand new company we had a whole bunch yeah. of customers and we wanted to build on that advocacy and also look at upsell and cross sell because we were two or three brands coming together and we were unifying as a single platform and we had cross sell and upsell opportunities so that was a position i hired as quickly as i could Product marketing is another difficult one because there's such demand for that role out there. And I had my people that I wanted and some of them just weren't available. And I that didn't come as quickly. That was one of the later positions that I hired. Same thing with comms, communications. Fortunate to get Lisa Soto, who she and I worked together 20 plus years ago at a startup. But I felt like I could limp along on the comms side because I had a contractor that was helping us. And it's a comfort zone for me, I can sort of pick up the slack on some of that stuff. So I kind of took it in in the areas of priority, but definitely starting with pipeline and needing to work with the sales team and build the pipeline engine as quickly as possible. So by the time we hired the head of demand gen field marketing, and then we brought in some of his key leaders, both in the Americas, but also in other regions, that stalled our, our pipeline creation initially. So we were a few months behind where I would have wanted us to be. I would have been wanting to be cranking immediately. And it really didn't start until sort of later in Q3 for us. So now we've got this crazy rock solid team and, and things are looking great for both the end of this year and going into 2022. Yeah, that's really exciting. I mean, it's it's so funny how just coming in, building that team, I'm sure you reassessed your tech stack and looking at all that stuff. You know, you're doing all this thing. I'm sure you're looking at the website and trying to trying to do that. But so clear to me that you prioritize getting the, the right people on the bus and just letting them do their thing there. I, I'm curious, when it came to that partnership with sales is obviously one of the key things to develop trust, as you mentioned. How did you think about looking at that attribution and, and, and looking at what does marketing take over from this predominantly sales-driven approach? It's an interesting one. So let me just make a comment on the website thing, because my entire focus for the first six months was resolving domains. Because we had made these acquisitions, right. my entire focus was getting everything to near.com because we had three or four different domains. Right. And so I, I cannot say that strategically in terms of customer journey and content and everything that the website was a, initially a priority. It, it is now and it will be in the future. Um, but that was definitely an interesting thing to go through. It was much more important to move 
all of these brands that we had acquired to a single thing and make that happen, which we have done successfully. On the the journey of the the go-to-market and and pipeline strategy, our sales leadership in the Americas had made a big bet on HubSpot. And I think you know, Ian, I come from a Marketo world, right? And so you have to be respectful, I think, coming into an organization that if there's certain investments made and HubSpot, not not just for marketing, but as a CRM platform. So I was completely willing to, and I have a lot of respect for HubSpot. I just hadn't really been a participant in their ecosystem. And so I had to partner with the sales leadership and realize that we'd made some bets on the sales side. And so we were going to have to figure out what we could do to augment it on the marketing side. And so in doing so, I think we're we're just now getting attribution figured out because it's a different it's a different set of tools that we're bringing into the into the environment. But clearly, that's the world I've always lived in. I'm I'm very performance marketing based. I'm used to multi touch attribution. I've used some of the best tools in the world. I used to work for a company that created one of those, both with lead to account routing and also marketing attribution. And so we're we're putting that in place now. So I think that the good news is we're not trailing that far behind the demand because we really have only gotten the demand and pipeline engine going in the last few months. So I think we're going to do some very interesting things and be a very unique case study for for HubSpot and some of the other tools we're using. Yeah, that's super. It's something I've been thinking about just following along from afar and, and seeing the stuff you're doing. And I was thinking that I'm like, well, I wonder... I wonder when you came in, is it just like take your hand across the desk and swipe everything off and start from scratch? Or like, how are you going to stitch together? Because I know you're particular about tools. I don't think that's reasonable. Totally. And and I think the other thing is that, you know, our sales team had made a big investment totally. in in this product. And I had to give it a shot from a marketing standpoint. Now, I fully reserve the right to say if in a year we don't scale through this process, we might make some changes, but I'm going to give it my my best shot. And so I think that also is part of the building trust, which is I'm not going to come in and rip a whole bunch of stuff out and tell you I know things that are I'm better and smarter because I know certain technology things better than the rest of you folks. You got to play nicely in this world that we live in. And so fortunately, I, I created a team that is doing that. It's a great point because at the end of the day, and this is just like how the world is right now, but it's like the marketer holds such a deep tech stack responsibility, whereas like the sales gal doesn't. Her job is to sell, right? Yep. That's what they get paid for. So of course that whatever makes them feel the most comfortable from a CRM perspective is great. They want leads and they want to know what campaigns they're working and they want to know all this stuff and they want pipeline to be generated and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, if they're comfortable using pen and paper, that's what the reps are going to use. But the other side of that is like, it takes the data-driven marketer to be able to make sense of the chaos, you know? And I think that that's kind of like... Exactly right. Now, and that then that's why I think where we are right now and the partnership I have with our, the biggest market, growth market for us right now is the Americas. And so the, the partnership I have with the, the head of sales is I gave him the benefit of the doubt. It's like, look, you have put all your eggs in the HubSpot basket, and I respect that because we made some changes in some of the other companies we acquired too. I'm going to do everything I can to make the marketing stuff work around that, but I need to be able to measure everything and be able to see how we're performing and make sure that that the data makes sense and my team can perform. And so we'll just, we'll touch base. And I think the, the, the reality is that the relationship he and I have is he's like, look, I made a decision to go this way. If you want to do something else in, in, in marketing automation, that's obviously your call. But I think we came together because we believed it was the right thing to do. And so it's that kind of partnership that I think you have to put in place. And it's been very symbiotic. Let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up that that patented Karen Steele playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. I know that this is still relatively early days. 
So you can talk about previous companies are kind of where you invested off the jump, but what are three channels and tactics that are your most uncuttable budget items? Yes, indeed. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm consulting. You guys have me so well prepared. I did have some notes. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think the uncuttables, it sounds really obvious, but you have to understand your audience. And whether you call it personas or segmentation, I don't actually care what marketers call it. You you have to be super in touch with the, the customer that you buy from. And for me, this is usually led by a product marketing function that does a really good job on defining the types of buyers, the types of personas, why they care, how you sell to them, what the differentiation is, how our competitors will talk to them, etc. But that's 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 huge. And, in, and for us at Near, because we have such a multifaceted set of buyers, we have these operational buyers that are completely different than these marketing buyers. And and so we're selling to two different worlds and schools of thought. And so that's 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 probably job number one. The other thing I would say is just understanding your data really well. And we did not have a robust database when I came into the company because we hadn't invested in building our database. And that seems like a very logical thing that you would do, but we weren't doing a bunch of outbound marketing. We were we really had no outbound marketing. We had reps that had relationships that were calling on customers and and we had a lot of success with that. And so building understanding your first party data and looking at third party data and intent data and building building that whole practice of data around your business, I think is really critical to be able to market successfully. And that goes hand in hand with whether or not you have an account-based marketing strategy. For us, yeah, we, we have key verticals we sell into and we have key accounts for sure. But I wouldn't say when I walked into Near we had a true ABM practice in the business. But we were behaving that way even though it wasn't documented. And I think some of it is just documenting that, feeding that engine with with demand gen programs that support those target accounts. And so those are the, the, the non-cutaways. I think you've got to know your audience. You've got to have a good handle on your data. You've got to be looking at account-based strategies for sure in an enterprise B2B world. And then the last thing I will say is, and this is one of the reasons, and I did this at Marketo, and I did this at Lean Data, and I did it here at Near. you've got to invest in the customer. And so one of the first people I hired when I joined Lean Data, and I think you know this, and one of the first people I hired when I joined Near is a head of customer marketing and growth, somebody to not just do the traditional references and case studies. I mean, I look at customer marketing as the AAA, it's advocacy, it's adoption, and it's advisory. And those three things are so critical for the growth of a company that that's always been part of my DNA. And it's always been one of the first hires I've ever made. I will have to do a DGV episode someday of the customer advisory board deep dive. We'll do like a how to because I I know that you have a a thick playbook on, on how to do that. But no, it's so cool to hear about your investments in customer storytelling, because I think this is something that I feel like years ago would not ever have been a top three uncuttable item, right? You'd be like, customer stories are not going to be, they're not, why would you do that? It was, and it was considered tactical. I think people just thought, oh yeah, those, we got to have a couple people hanging around that give sales references and maybe do the occasional case study. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about building true relationships. And I think Marketo is an awesome example where I happen to run the customer marketing team where you build champions and you build you build this engagement. At Marketo, we had a 60,000-person marketing nation community. I mean, if you think about what you can do with a community, imagine having a community of people that just advocate toward your product and share best practices and help other people in peer-level positions become stronger marketers. It's like 
it's the best thing in the world. And I think not every software product lends itself to that kind of a, a process, I realize. But I think if you can start with that philosophy, which is that customers don't just help your company, they help other customers. And they help you learn about your products. And so things like early adopter programs, not just beta programs, but really getting people engaged with your products early, learning about that from a product development standpoint, and then helping showcase their success. It's just been a lot of fun over the years to to watch this this grow. And I think the the biggest opportunity for us at NEAR is that we have this huge upsell cross-sell opportunity because we have products that are used in other parts of the world that aren't used in the United States. And we have products used in the United States that aren't used in other parts of the world because we're still blending everything together. And so that upsell cross-sell unity um, is a huge opportunity for us. So I'm curious, you mentioned that like someone's company might not be the perfect opportunity to build a community around, or maybe it's just like, maybe it is an opportunity, but maybe it would take years to kind of cultivate that and develop that or something. But I think that what's so interesting about customer stories and, and communities is like a lot of these things are happening already. Like I was talking to CMO's guest on this podcast and he was like, yeah, if something's bad, I'm just going to go on the like 15 CMO slacks that I'm part of and I'll just badmouth it. If something's good, I'm going to do that. So like even those communities in private kind of already exist, which is interesting that like to tap into those, the communities that are already existing or peer groups that are already existing. And customer stories is a way to kind of like figure out way to add yourself into those conversations rather than adding yourself into single person discovery. And I think that those two things are just very different because when you see Jane Doe, the CMO of XYZ Corp, has a, has a really cool customer video and story and content and all that sort of stuff. When I go and see her, I'm like, hey, I saw that you're, you partner with them. Can you tell me more about that? Whereas on my own road to discovery, I might come across a piece of content that it's like, how you can do X, Y, and Z. And it's just a very different experience because one spurs me to go talk to someone else about it, about their experience. The other one is just like, oh, okay, I learned something today and maybe I'll forward that to someone on my team. And I think that there's a lot of people who aren't investing in customer marketing that don't really understand the difference between those two things and how you can drive word of mouth with one and, and the other one, maybe not as much. Yeah. And I... I've always been a big fan of, there's a product called Influitive. And one of the things that you're able to do with Influitive is you can invest in a community all day long, but if you don't create the engagement around that community, where people are truly doing cool things for the benefit of growing their own network themselves or expanding their footprint to get new jobs in the future. I mean, Influitive is this awesome way to create this this engagement and in a gamification way to reward your customers for doing good things for you. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. I mean, it's it's how you create that advocacy where it goes beyond advocacy. Somebody just saying, yes, I'll do a case study for you. But instead, somebody saying, yeah, I want to stand up and talk about you all day long. And in fact, I'll come host a user group. I'll start one in my community because I think so highly of you guys and I've learned so much and I've I've met so many great people. And and so I think investing in those kinds of tools, which is what I've been fortunate to do over the years, in addition to community, goes a long way as well. So what about where are you going to spend some money uh, next year? Where's one place where you're like, I'm definitely investing in this? So for Nier, um, we we're, we're an unknown brand in the United States. And so we, we do have to do some brand awareness. We need to put this company on the map. We're not necessarily creating a brand new category or anything like that, but people don't connect our company with, with what we do. And so there will be some, some brand awareness spend. There a hundred percent will be obviously pipeline generation, we're on the hook for a number, as of course you would expect. But there will be a customer investment for sure. The things we were just talking about, we we have the gentleman who's running customer growth and, and, and marketing will be looking at how do we upsell and cross-sell all of our products around the world and how do we reward our customers at the same time. So 
We will be doing a, a global advisory board. We will be looking at user groups. We will be investing in, in the customer. And so, so I think global awareness, communications, putting the company on the map, share a voice, that's going to be one big thing we'll measure next year. 100%, I'm on the hook to deliver a pipeline number, and I'm always a partner with sales to do that. So that will probably be one of the top things my team gets measured on. And then certainly customer success and customer success by way of whether we create communities or we create user groups or we just create champions for our brand, that's going to be a big area. Um, And then the upsell, cross-sell growth. What about one thing that isn't working or something that you don't want to invest in 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 the coming year that I think might be a little overhyped? Well, let me just say this about events. And I'm a big fan of events, by the way, but I'd rather do two or three big events and go big than 25 trade shows, if, if, if you understand what I mean here. And so I think that I care about having a big presence and having the impact. And so, and this, this has less to do with the fact that we, we've all gone through this complete transition of physical events becoming uh, virtual events, and now they're becoming more hybrid. I think whatever the delivery is, it's the same amount of work. And any events, really good events person will tell you, it's probably more work to do a virtual event than it is to do a physical event. And yep. what I care about at, a, at, a, at an event is own it, have a, have a big presence, have a speaking opportunity, make your brand visible as possible. And I'd rather do a handful of those than 25 other small things because I just don't think you get the mileage. And I've lived in both worlds. I've been at companies that do both. And I've been at companies that just do one or the other. But I'm, I'm a big fan of that. And so I'd rather, I'd rather go big or go home when it comes to events. That's, that's kind of my philosophy. I love it. Go big or go home. Any other campaign-related stuff? I know you're. it's so early that you're still working on all these campaigns and figuring everything out, but any cool campaign stories or anecdotes in, in the early days? Yeah, I, you know, I thought about, and I'm going to date myself when I talk about a couple of these, but one of the best campaigns, and this was literally the first startup I think I worked at, it was a company called Quote.com. And Quote.com was a one of the one of the first commercial websites that actually sold content in a subscription model for very wealthy individual investors. So they aggregated a bunch of financial data and eventually they provided access to online trading. We we were not a trading platform at the time, but we we ran a campaign and I'd have to dig it up for you. I God, I hope if we searched it online we could find it. But we ran a campaign that was called Run with the Big Dogs. And the whole idea was to empower these individual investors to have all the power they needed from their desktop to go be as successful as somebody on Wall Street that had Bloomberg and, and could trade to their heart's content. And it was super successful. We ran print and radio and, you know, it was just, it was off the charts. It increased our subscriber rates like crazy and it got a ton of buzz before we had social media. So when I say I'm dating myself, we didn't even have social media platforms back then, but it was an awesome campaign. And it someday I'd love to show it to you because it was it was a really cool campaign, and it was a small Sequoia-based startup, and it really helped the company take off, and, and they, they did in a pretty big way. The flip side of that, I think, I think one of the questions you had posed to me before this interview was, worst campaign ever, and I probably have a few of the horror stories that many of my peers out there have, but I was at Apple in the early days, as you know, and, and we launched the Macintosh computer and wildly successful, etc. But we ran a campaign and it was a timing issue. We were selling through dealers at the time and we ran a campaign right before Christmas, which was called Test Drive a Macintosh. Brilliant campaign. I could show you all the elements of it. It was so well thought out. We delivered this whole kit of things to resellers and dealers in in stores. This was pre-Apple Store, so these were independent dealers. 
and we disrupted their business. It was it was not practical to be doing this kind of a campaign where they would have to stop what they were doing and give Sunby a free Macintosh for the weekend. So despite how successful the original launch of the Macintosh was, putting that kind of campaign in a dealer channel right before the holidays and expecting your resellers to augment that and and put that forward was super messy and we got a lot of backlash and so sometimes the best the best and worst campaigns just all come down to execution right it could you could still have the best idea in the world and i think in the in the case of test drive a macintosh we did i mean it was cool stuff like we had i'm not a race car person but we had like these brown gloves that we shipped with the <laughs> you know if you got your little mac and took it home for the weekend you got a little test drive racer car glove and there were so many things that were cool about it and really well structured but it was just the, the timing of it proved to be pretty bad. And so we wasted a lot of money. And that was a national campaign that Apple ran that we we did, I think, a couple months later, rebirth that and it ended up being successful. But doing it between Christmas and New Year's was not a good idea. I was just going to say, you probably you run it February 15th. It's probably a slam dunk. It was a slam dunk That's once so we did That's that. So yeah. Gosh. Well, you know, it's funny. This is completely different, but we promote a lot of the podcasts that we create throughout the entire year. But you're at such a whim of of all the different ad networks and stuff like that. And so people are like, man, do people listen to podcasts over the holidays? Like, yeah, people listen to podcasts all the time. But buying ad traffic during those spots is crazy expensive, obviously. Right. Uh, so basically, anytime from Black Friday all the way through the holidays is like ad units are just so much more expensive that it's like you have to figure it out. You always see why different companies have different fiscal years all the time. But I always think about that at the end of the year for B2B. I'm like, if you have that December 31st end of year and you're trying to like get some of those last minute marketing campaigns in, you're going to be spending a premium to try to get in front of people. But the funny thing is if you're, if you're a public company, a large public company, like I worked at one called VMware, and I remember getting asked, actually it was early November going into the Christmas holiday can you spend $10 million in the next six weeks? And, oh, yeah. and and the reality is, yeah, you can spend it if you want to buy high-profile advertising, et cetera. But, but the, that wasn't just a whim, like they wanted to go spend all this money on awareness. That was a That's a financial decision yep. when you get down to closing the books at the end of the year. And so I think as marketers, we have to be conscious of that stuff too. I mean, we have... We have budgets that we manage to, and then sometimes if we're at larger public companies, we have things that we need to be able to pivot and adapt to, even if even if they it doesn't make sense that to us it it makes sense to the CFO. And so there's there's a bunch of different timing things that that play into some of these decisions. Totally. I mean, we deal with that all the, I mean, as you could imagine, but at Caspi, you know, we're we're managing thirty 30 podcasts and it's like end of year, depending on whenever the end of the fiscal is, we get that all the time because it's just like, yep. hey, you know, we're going to do this campaign and then let's dump on a bunch of marketing on top of it right before the end of the fiscal because we got a bunch of money that we got to we got to spend. No, totally. We called that back in the day when I was at Apple, we called that uh, it, and it happened often on a quarterly basis. We called it fuel dumping. Yes. And that's what it is. And Again, we have to adapt to these things, but but I think I think in the B2B world a lot of things are a little more predictable these days, but fun fun problems to deal and with. Vendors are savvy. I think that's the other thing too. Like we know as a company, we know that sort of stuff. We can read the tea leaves a little bit. We can work with our customers to figure out how do we make something like that work and spend it all in the quarter and stuff like that. But yeah, we're always spending it in that in the quarter that it's paid in. Yeah, that's fun. Fun campaign. Yeah. Don't fight with the holidays. That's a great B2B lesson. I feel like that's a good takeaway. Okay, let's get to our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly. As we've got punches and kicks. That's where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, your competitors, or anyone else. Karen, you're so even keel. I know you've never had a memorable dust up, or have you? 
Oh, of course I have. I think it takes a lot to rustle my feathers, but I think I think just over the years the biggest the biggest thing comes down to kind of an understanding of philosophy differences in in just the core understanding of what what marketing is and what they do. I think I said earlier in the program that there's not a lot of companies out there that are marketing driven. Most companies are sales driven, they're product driven. And so I think sometimes marketing is viewed as a cost center. I'll go so far as to call it an arts and crafts department, as opposed to being a strategic revenue driver for the business. And so I think the biggest dust ups, if I've had them, honestly, are I'm very protective of the teams I build and the work we do, because I know it's contributing to the bottom line and top line. And it usually comes down to that. It usually, if, if, if I'm having a dust up at a company, it's usually very philosophically oriented around the appreciation and understanding of marketing. It's gotten better over the years, I'll be honest. I think as, as more savvy B2B companies invest in, in marketing and marketing becomes a true performance revenue hub, I think people have more of an appreciation. But when marketing is viewed as, oh, they're the people that put on big events and they do the arts and crafts and brochures, that's always a point of contention for me. And there will most certainly be a dust up. I love it. It reminds me of that Airbnb cutting marketing at the beginning of this past year in 2021 and people being like, see, you can cut marketing. And it's like, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, we will see. Yeah. Yeah. See how that plays out. Yeah. You mentioned the website a little bit and how this is going to be a project for you over the next year. I'm curious, as a, as a dyed-in-the-wool B2B marketer, how do you view the website? It's, it's your front door to the market. It is a critical part of your storytelling and exposing your brand to the world. Depending on how you sell, we are not in the freemium market, so I'm not selling a product. It's not an e-commerce website for us at least not today. But I think you need to do things to engage people on your website. And so understanding and telling the story on the website that is the customer journey that you want to tell is super important. And by the way, don't look at near.com right now and expect to see that as a wildly good example, because we're not there yet. As I mentioned, we've been spending the last six months just to coalesce certain domains together. But your website is your front door. It's the front door to your brand. Everybody communicates online these days. Everybody is going to look at your website first and do their own online research before they ever probably reach out and have a conversation with one of your sales reps. So your website needs to have great content. It needs to be personalized to the extent you can. It needs to just have great opportunities for people to engage with you and learn more. So it is probably the most important thing you have to invest in. Certainly you have to to get your brand known and get your website out there. You have to do the the mechanics of SEO really well and SEM and make sure if somebody's searching for your category or your products that you come up, etc. But I think the main thing is the customer journey and understanding that and making sure that all of the content that you display throughout that process comes up for your prospects. Let's get to our final segment, Quick Hits. These are quick questions and quick answers, just like conversational marketing with qualified. Qualified prospects are on your website right now, and you can talk to them quickly with qualified. Go to qualified.com to learn more quick and easy, just like these questions. We love qualified. Go check them out, qualified.com. Quick hits. Karen, are you ready? Yes, I am. Number one, what's a hidden talent or skill that's not on your resume? Oh, gosh. Empathy. I think it's so important to not just empathy to the people you work with, but empathy to your buyers, to your customers, just being kind and empathetic. I don't think that probably comes across in my resume, and it probably doesn't even come across in this conversation, but it matters a lot. At the end of the day, it's all about people. And I think empathy and kindness today and every day matters a lot. What's your favorite non-marketing hobby that sort of maybe kind of indirectly makes you a better marketer? 
Oh my gosh, you're stumping me here. Hobby. I, I have two dogs and I, I spend a lot of time in my neighborhood walking the dogs. And I would tell you that five years ago before I had these dogs, I wasn't very friendly or accessible to my neighbors. And I think having dogs and walking them a couple times a day makes me a more conversational and better person. And I, I get I, I meet people of all walks of life and I hear lots of different stories and it's always, and I've met some great marketers, by the way, on these walks <laughs> with my dogs who also have dogs. And so I think it, it just makes me, it, it makes me a better person and I, I learn more about people. That's so a great one. I love that. Our little furry friends. What is your best piece of advice for a first time CMO trying to figure out their demand gen strategy? So first and foremost, understand understand, understand, not just your product, but understand your selling process and the people that sell your product. Because that's the only way to build go to market success is it starts there because sales is at the tip of the sphere. And you really have to understand the kinds of people you have in those selling motions and what they're doing that works and what they're doing that doesn't work. And then and then build programs around that, then figure out where the gaps are, where your opportunities are, where your strongest accounts lie, etc. And and build around that. But it's know your business, know your selling motions, know how marketing can augment that in the very, very best way. And then partner, of course, it goes without saying partner with all parts of your selling engine, whether it's if you have a channel business and you have a head of biz dev or you are selling purely direct or you're in different parts of the world, you've just got to connect with all those people and understand it super, super well. Karen, awesome having you on the show. Thanks as always for our listeners. Go check out near.com to learn more. Obviously, lots of exciting things coming from you in 2022 and beyond. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? No, I'd say just just, just check out Nier. We're a, we're a data company and we're doing great things, but it's, it's fun building right now. That's the mode we're in. It's fun getting our story out there. What I would say to all my peer marketing friends, build your story and get your story right. I spent the first three months of the first seven months I've been here nailing our brand strategy, getting our corporate narrative done, getting everybody engaged with our culture code. I mean, those things, they're not something you should wait and do in six months or 12 months or 18 months. You got to do them as quickly as you can, get everybody on the team on the same page, and then just go tell the heck out of that story to everybody because that's when it becomes fun. And we're near.com. Near is getting into that mode right now. I love it. Awesome. Thanks again, Karen. Thank you. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.